The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome one of my favorite guests back, Mr. Andy Fisher. He is the author of a terrific book titled Big Hunger, The Unholy Alliance Between Corporate America and Anti-Hunger Groups. But I also happened upon a recent piece he wrote for Yes Magazine, and it had to do with food waste and how we often in our society use food waste and deliver that to people in need in keeping with the charity model of how we handle hunger. And I thought, ah. Oh, got to have Mr. Fisher back because this is a terrific topic. It's much bigger than it seems. So welcome. I'm happy to have you with me, Andy. Thank you, Melinda. My pleasure always. Well, you have been involved with hunger and advocacy and social justice issues for decades. And since writing your book, you have spoken at my professional organization meeting, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. You were a special guest at a film screening panel that we had on hunger. And I want to talk about the whole role of charity. Is charity the best way to solve our nation's growing hunger problem? Sure. Uh, no, it is not the best way to solve our nation's growing hunger problems. And just to kind of give you some context on those numbers, we started measuring food insecurity as a nation in 1995. Food insecurity is a kind of a bit of a more scientific approach to measuring hunger. It measures people's behaviors and experiences related to whether they have enough food to feed themselves and whether they or if they've run out of money to buy food. So we've been measuring, again, we've been measuring that since 1995. In 95, we found that 12% of the nation was food insecure. And in 2016, we found that 12.3% of the nation was food insecure. So we're not making progress over that 20-year period. The numbers go up and down, and things are better than they were during the height of the recession. But again, over that arc of time, we're treading water. So why are we treading water? And we're treading water in part for a couple reasons. One is we do have a shredded safety net. The food stamp program is on the chopping block once again with the current Congress and Farm Bill. The welfare program, the aid for families and dependent children, was chopped back in the 1996 welfare reform bill. We have stagnating wages. The minimum wage reached its maximum purchasing power back in 1968 and should be at over $18 an hour if it had kept up with productivity. I've seen some recent statistics that the vast majority of productivity gains by workers have been captured by businesses rather than passed on to wages and workers. And then also we find that it's harder and harder for for employees to be getting full-time hours, especially in places like retail stores or fast food restaurants. Companies are staggering their schedules. They're not giving them their schedules ahead of time, making it harder for part-time workers to pull together multiple jobs to be able to get full-time wages. So as a result of all those things, people just don't have enough money to buy food. So food charities stepped in, food banks have stepped in, filled that gap, 
But there's collateral damage to that gap. It's, it's, you know, having to rely on charity to feed yourself or feed your family is not a dignified way of life. And I've seen many of those examples in my own volunteer work in food pantries and heard many stories from others as I travel around the country talking about this issue. So it's not a sustainable solution. It's not a dignified solution. But it's what we've been doing for the past 35 to 40 years, and it keeps growing and growing and growing to the extent where last year food banks served 46 million people with $5 billion worth of food. It's become this institution within our society that we find it very hard to let go of because of the immediacy of hunger. Yeah. And it seems that it works well for corporations who donate leftover food. And that was part of what you discussed in your article for Yes Magazine. So there is surplus food that we produce, and then the manufacturer can donate that to a food bank, and they can get some reimbursement for the overproduction. So They earn tax deductions, for example, for donating extra food to charities so they can recapture part of their overhead. But it seems to me that it would be better if we didn't produce the excess food to begin with, right? Because that's food waste. Exactly. And that's what's been happening. And in some ways, it's been getting better. Supermarkets over the years have become much more efficient in their inventory systems and in their their controls, because they realize that they, they can save money. So food banks aren't getting as much food as they used to. But there's still, you know, an enormous amount of food that's being overproduced by grocery stores and by food manufacturers. And, you know, one of the classic cases of this is, is sheet cakes. You know, I've heard constant stories, again, as they travel around and talk to food banks about the overproduction and how much, not just sheet cakes, like birthday cakes that they get from grocery stores, but pastries, baked goods, there's an enormous amount of baked goods in the food pantry system because, as you can imagine, they go stale after a day or two and the stores can't sell them and they overstock because they want people to have a choice. You know, nobody wants to buy the last item on the shelf, right? right? So stores feel like they have to keep the shelves full so people buy. Then at the end of the day, they've got all this stuff. What do they do with it? Sure, they could throw it in the garbage, but, you know, that's not great. It's not really the most sustainable thing, and it costs them money to have it hauled away. Or they can donate it to a food bank for where they can get a tax deduction. They can get some earned media. They can get kind of a sense of their corporate social responsibility and the like. But what's happening is that we're dumping an awful lot of unhealthy food into the emergency food system. There's a great group out of L.A. called Mazone that did some very comprehensive studies of the food that's being distributed by by food banks and found that 25% of what they distribute falls into these unhealthy categories of soda and candy, baked goods and chips. And in particular, back to baked goods, I mean, I was in a, a pantry in Denver, Colorado, which told me that they receive 17,000 pounds of baked goods each month. Um, oh, my gosh. Which is an average of three pounds per person. And their dietitian estimates that their clients only need like one ounce because they're getting lots of stuff everywhere else. So they have an excess. So basically, of that 17,000 pounds, 14,000 pounds is, is excess based upon the needs of their community. So where is that going? It's, people are still eating it, it, but it's unhealthy. It's, it's obesogenic foods. It's not good if you're diabetic. And it's, you know, obviously has less sugar in it. So it's, you know, uh, that's just one small example of the type of unhealthy foods that are being distributed by the industry. 
Yeah. And you know, this is not an isolated situation. I know I have a friend who was dependent on going to a food pantry for a while. And she said, Melinda, you wouldn't believe it. I got a box of candy bars. And I have visited food pantries and food banks also across the country as part of my work as a dietitian within the Hunger and Environmental Nutrition Practice Group. And I see foods there that are appalling that I would not recommend to my clients, that the USDA doesn't recommend because they do contribute to ill health. But that seems to be the norm. Now, granted, there are pantries and food banks that are putting in gardens and teaching people how to cook, and that is certainly a much better way to go. Yeah, but can I, can, if I can just jump yes. in with one other little anecdote along these lines. Yes. So, you know, there's something called a healthy food pantry policies that have been established and to encourage, like you're saying, pantries to have nutrition policies about what they distribute, to be more conscious about it, to not to be distributing soda or other products, to be, you know, encouraging more produce consumption. And by and large, you're seeing that, you know, the amount of produce that's being distributed through the food bank system is increasing. Estimates are about a third of what food banks distribute as produce. But just to kind of go down back down to this kind of big good line again, I heard one anecdote from Wisconsin when I was speaking in Madison of a person who works for Cooperative Extension in a county in, in Wisconsin who is encouraging the food pantry in, in her county uh, to implement this healthy food pantry policy. They took it up. They agreed, you know, this is great. We're not going to be distributing the, the donuts and the like. And so they found a pig farmer to send the, the baked goods to. A month goes by, the pig farmer calls them up and says, I'm sorry, but I just can't take these anymore. And they say, why not? And the, the pig farmer says, because my pigs are getting too aggressive from all the sugar they're eating. So that's what we're putting into our bodies, and that's what we're putting into the system. I mean, you have to think about what is the damage to our society in general when we keep feeding people who are very vulnerable, people who are living in, in often violent-prone communities, you know, such unhealthy foods. Oh, I'm so glad you shared that story because you included that in the Yes Magazine article. And it made me think about the new research that's coming out, looking at how we eat, how those nutrients affect our gut microbiome, and how the microbiome in our gut affects our mental health. So this is a great story proving that these kinds of junk foods that are high in refined carbohydrates, high in sugar, unhealthy fats are not only leading to diabetes and obesity, high blood pressure as well, but also poorer mental health, which, I don't know, it just seems that we need to think of a better way out of this problem of charity with poor nutrient foods and helping people have a more dignified way to stay well-fed. And I thought maybe we'd talk a little bit about what's going on in the summer because so many children are not at school where they receive, say, free and reduced-priced lunches if they're living in poverty. And during the summer at the summer feeding programs, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what's going on in different communities around the country with hungry kids. Sure. As you mentioned, the summer is often called the hungry time for many school kids because they're no longer getting school lunches or and breakfasts for many kids. So two meals a day, they're not getting. So as you said, there's a USDA operates a summer food program, which has sites typically in recreation centers or parks or schools where kids can go who qualify for the program can go and uh, receive a free meal or two. 
and they've been very important in kind of stabilizing the nutrition for many of these kids who are at, oftentimes at home alone or their parents don't have money to be purchasing food for, you know, the entire month. But those sites are inadequate. The food has been widely criticized as being of poor quality, mm. uh, so they don't work quite as well as, as they should. So what anti-hunger advocates have been doing is they recognize those limitations and they've convinced USDA to experiment with increasing the SNAP program during the summer months for some families. So they're, you know, they've increased the, the budget so the families who have kids who are out of school would get a, a little bump in their benefits during those summer months to mm-hmm. help them buy more food. Yeah. So that's just one real tangible example of good policy. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the way we've made food banking the norm. Do you think we can ever climb out of this system? I certainly hope so. And, and again, just for some context, the first food banks were really created, really took hold in the early 1980s in the wake of a, kind of the recession at that point, mm-hmm. cutbacks in the food stamp program by the Ronald Reagan administration. And now we have 200 food banks, 60,000 food pantries where somebody can go and get a box of groceries or a soup kitchen where they get a meal that serve 46 million people, again, about $4.5 billion worth of food. So it's become, again, very institutionalized kind of system. So, and that grows year by year, and its growth is partly driven by the national hub for food banks, Feeding America, which sets standards for how much food, or the poundage that food banks have to distribute to persons in poverty. So it encourages, and it, it sets benchmarks by which you have to distribute more and more food. And what feeds into that also is that food banks typically measure their success in terms of the amount of pounds that they distribute and the amount of people that they serve. So as long as they're measuring their success in those terms, you're going to get what you measure, and their organizations are going to continue to drive towards that indicator, towards that metric of, of growth. But what we need and what we're, some food banks are starting to do is is to measure their success in other terms. They're starting to see, they're starting to measure their success in terms of the health of their clients. Yeah. They're starting to put a lot more resources into upstream kind of root cause work, such so policy advocacy and job training and things like that. So those food banks, and they're kind of hit and miss around the country, are experimenting with other ways that, that are going to bend down the growth curve, where they're not just what they call, they're not just feeding the need, but they're trying to shorten the line, shorten the number of people who are, who are coming through the doors. I think over time, as food banks really begin to find ways to move away from that strict feeding approach, that you will see, you know, over the next five or 10 years, you will start to see the, the growth curve bend down and, and food banks distributing less and less food. Boy, I sure hope so. Andy, I need to take one short break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Mr. Andy Fisher. He is the author of a terrific book titled Big Hunger, The Unholy Alliance Between Corporate America and Anti-Hunger Groups. He recently wrote a terrific piece for Yes! Magazine that looked at how food waste ties into the food banking and hunger system. Andy, I want to pick up your book that I have here in the studio. There's one chapter, chapter two, that looks at how the CEOs of food banks are paid. And I'll be honest with you, my mouth dropped open when I saw that the CEO of Feeding America, 
earned over $600,000 in salary and benefits in 2015. You know, going down, just looking at, say, the Greater Boston Food Bank, the CEO there in 2015 earned over $300,000 in salary and benefits. It seems like, while I'm sure these people are working hard and doing good work, it seems that that salary is disproportionate to the people they serve, and it seems out of line with the rest of the working population. Absolutely. I mean, I think in those high salaries are evidence that most food banks are not in the social justice business, but they're in the social service business. Yeah. So they see themselves akin as hospitals or, or other large community institutions. And they reinforce that perception by valuing their food. For example, you'll have a food bank that has a $10 million cash budget, but it will distribute $60 million worth of food, which has been received through through supermarkets and the like. So it will then position itself as a $70 million organization, which justifies those high salaries. So you see those those high salaries as a kind of, a, again, as an indicator of that these are, these are well-entrenched businesses, essentially, in many cases, who, who see themselves as essentially not in that framework, not as a social change organization, but as a, as a business. And the clearest example of that is the Greater Boston Food Bank, which has compensated its CEO, it has given its CEO a bonus, often of $90,000 a year, in part because she meets certain criteria, one of which is the amount of pounds that the organization distributes. So it, it's like a company that's meeting its, its revenue goals. It's the same kind of structure. Right. And just so our listeners understand, these are not two isolated cases that I just pulled out. You've got the CEOs of North Texas Food Bank, San Francisco, Chicago, Santa Clara County, Maryland, all of them making well over $200,000, closer to $300,000. No, yeah. And those numbers are old. Those are like 2014, 2015. Right. Exactly. So these individuals probably don't want to lose those jobs. Right, and that's partly of my point, as I talk about that there's a hunger industrial complex. Thing. Yes. And that there's this, these very close ties between big business, corporate America, and anti-hunger groups, that they work together. And that, for example, most of the $85 billion that we distribute as a nation in federal food programs through SNAP and WIC and school lunches are going into the pockets of big corporations, whether they're Walmart or Tyson or ConAgra or Kraft or the Dollar Tree stores, you know, those are common recipients. But at the same, so so anti-hunger work is big business for them. And it's yeah. also big business for them in terms of charity because they're giving billions of dollars worth of food and getting lots of earned media. And it's, in some cases, it's helping them gain entrance into new markets and it's helping them build a reputation as caring, responsible, socially responsible companies. But on the other hand, you also see big food banks which are as tied to corporations as corporations are tied to them, who have very little incentive to end the program either. It's, they perpetuate the problem by not addressing root causes, by just addressing kind of the, the symptoms rather than the, the causes, and then by the high salaries that many of those food bankers earn. You know, why would they want to give those up? Exactly. And the goal really should be to build a better system. You know, I think it's Buckminster Fuller who says, you know, rather than 
always saying negative things about the existing structure. What we should be doing is having a positive new vision for a structure or a community where we don't need food banks and food pantries anymore. Exactly. Yeah, and we need to move. You're correct. We're never going to solve the problem with the same thinking that we created it with. Yeah. So we need a new approach to it. And we also need to transform the existing institutions that we are. I'm not here to say that we shouldn't have food banks. I'm here to say that the food banks that we do have need to be doing different kinds of work. Uh, they need to, you know, and oftentimes in, in your community and mine, they're the most powerful organization that's working on poverty and hunger issues. But they need to be doing it in a way that builds community, that builds a local economy, that promotes health and economic democracy. Right. And shifting away from this charity culture, and I'm not sure how we market that because it feels so good to give, but we do need to, I think, consider the dignity of the person who is receiving essentially food waste or food that is abundant, that is not necessarily in their best interests, but will fill their bellies. Right. And part of it, again, you know, going back to the beginning of this interview is part of it goes back to corporate America. Part of it goes back to the fact that there is so much waste in the system. And to some degree, waste drives the emergency food system. Mm. Sure, there is inadequate income and sure, there are a lot of people in poverty. But that doesn't have to be the way we address the system through giving them the food waste. The fact that there is food waste is, you know, it's such a, an outrage to us as a nation. It's so immoral to us. I mean, and it's something I struggle with myself, with my own children. Throwing food away is, angers me. So, And it's the same for everybody else around the country. We don't want to be doing that. We don't want to throw perfectly good food into the landfill. So we give it to the poor as if you know, the poor's the highest role for them is to be a carbon sink or a waste disposal mechanism. We don't think about the impact on their dignity or on their health. Right. You give some examples of some distribution centers and social enterprises that are really making a difference. So food pantries, we might be feeding people, but we're also providing other benefits like job creation and skills development. And you give some examples of LA Kitchen, the food shift in Oakland, California, and the real junk food cafes in the UK. So what do those other systems look like where people may be coming in to eat hopefully a nourishing meal, but at the same time, they're also being trained. How does that work? Sure. I'll give you a couple examples. I was just doing a benefit for Food Shift in Oakland, and it's a very small organization, very new, that picks up surplus produce and other healthy food from supermarkets and other you know, restaurants and the like, and they bring that food back and they employ formerly homeless people. They employ folks who don't have jobs and they train them in the catering industry using that food. So they produce meals for different venues as a way of path of income generation and job creation. Those people go on to graduate and get jobs in the culinary field. I mean, that's something that LA Kitchen does as well as those DC Central Kitchen. So that's one really clear path. There's other paths in which people are picking up waste and not giving it away, but they're selling it. You know, there's a great store in Boston called The Daily Table. Um, yeah. There's cafes in England called The Real Junk Food Cafes that use food waste in their operation. And they don't believe in charity, but they do believe in minimizing the amount of waste that's out there and using it towards a more sustainable purpose. 
Yeah, exactly. You write in the Yes Magazine article that hunger is a symptom of poverty and that we have to work on policies that ultimately eliminate poverty. I'm reading this while I have the page open that looks at the CEO salaries. So it's like, this is just so wrong. And you're right, you know, eliminating poverty will not be achieved by giving people day-old baguettes or even carrots and kale, but by working in solidarity to help them build skills, education, wages, and political power. There is a lot of opposition to raising the minimum wage. When you are speaking, you speak all over the country and world about this. You've been in Scotland, you've been all over. How do you address people who question the benefit of raising minimum wage? Well, I, that's a good point. I, I do get questions or comments on occasion of people who cite the concern that if you raise minimum wage, you're going to cause unemployment or to your cause inflation. And I've looked into this fairly thoroughly. And yeah, there are cases, certainly. There are cases, especially in the restaurant industry and certainly in rural communities where if you're raising wages, especially too quickly, will cause what economists call economic dislocations. They will cause problems. They will cause some businesses to have problems. But by and large, overall, the benefits to raising wages far exceed the cost. There have been no studies over the years, and there's been lots that have have comprehensively shown that raising wages are going to cause unemployment. So it's really, to me, it's kind of a red herring non-issue. Yeah. Well, we just have a few minutes left, and I want to put the ball in your court. What do you want people to be thinking about, either about hunger or charity, poverty, food bank systems? What would you like our listeners to walk away with and give us a charge, give us something to do to make the system better? Sure. Two things. I think in this time, you know, we, especially with the farm bill in front of us, and the Republican Party wanting to slash the food stamp program and the SNAP program and to put on more work requirements. I think we have to make it very clear that that is not acceptable and that the the SNAP program is a vital element of our nation's safety net and protects many people from starvation. So if we as a nation want to see people not go hungry in the streets, not starve, not have the kind of the, the health impacts that come with that, and not have the children have the health impacts and the educational impacts that come with that, then we need to be feeding them. And charity can't do it. It's not appropriate, nor is it possible. So I think that's the number one thing I want to put out. And second, I, want to, I really want to put out a different narrative. All too often we think about, we have tied the story that the solution to food waste is to give food to the poor. And that is, you know, and it's embedded into the EPA's food recovery hierarchy. You know, the first thing is source reduction. The second thing is giving food to to people. Fine. I agree. Absolutely. Give food to people. But it doesn't have to be through charity. That there are health costs and that there are costs of the dignity of people when we rely so much on charity. So we need to break down this narrative of reducing hunger through food waste. It's neither sustainable nor feasible, nor dignified. Well, Andy, I want to thank you so much for bringing your wise insights to our audience. I think that compassion starts with awareness. And if we really want to get a good understanding of the hunger issues facing our nation, 
Big Hunger, The Unholy Alliance Between Corporate America and Anti-Hunger Groups, the book that Andy Fisher is the author of, is a great place to start. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Andy Fisher. Andy is the co-founder, and he operated the Community Food Security Coalition for 17 years, and he is the author of Big Hunger. Thanks for being my guest, Andy. Thank you, Melinda, again.